Once again, from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 447. It is June the 3rd, 2010. Sorry about that, folks. And it is a Thursday. The short week is throwing me off. Uh, But it is June the 3rd, 2010, episode 447. And today what we're going to talk about is guerrilla gardening. And uh, I think this will be a fun episode. And we're going to talk about guerrilla gardening and the conventional sense, I hate to use that word, when we define gorilla, you'll understand why, Um, and we'll talk about it in the survivalist sense, and we'll talk about where the two worlds overlap and what we can learn from each other, and uh, I think maybe everybody that listens to this show that has any idea of what gorilla gardening may be might come away with a different uh, viewpoint of it, and I think I'll make a compelling case why it's a bigger topic, it's a wider topic, it's an, it's a uh, it's a looser defined term than I think the people that have called themselves guerrilla gardeners would like to believe. It's uh, it's a much broader topic, and it also will be a topic that will change over time. What is guerrilla gardening tomorrow may be far different than what guerrilla gardening is today. Uh, just as in the case of guerrilla warfare has changed over time. We'll chat about that in a second, but before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and making sure that we're here every day for you, Monday through Friday, at least most weeks. Sponsor of the day number one is the Berkey Guy with Berkey Light Water Filtration Systems. Folks, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, one way or another, you need to make sure uh, that you can provide yourself clean, uh, usable drinking water, whether it's in a shit-hit-the-fan scenario or it's whether you're tired of drinking water that comes out of your faucet full of chemicals like fluoride and chlorine that you would prefer not to be there. Either way, Berkey Light water filters can help you take care of those issues and make sure you have that clean elixir of life known as water always available to you. Next up today is Backyard Food Production, one of my favorite sponsors because... They're all about education, and they're all about helping you learn how to provide your own sustenance from your own backyard. Whether you're on a small suburban lot or a small-scale farm or anything in between, you can use their DVD to learn how uh, to set up systems on your property that will feed you. The beauty of these folks is they're people that are really doing it. Uh, it's not just something that they thought up one day as a business model. In fact, they did it first and produced the DVD second. They didn't build the self-sustaining farm so they could sell a DVD. After they built the self-sustaining farm, they thought, you know what, maybe other people would like to know how to do this. So I highly recommend you consider purchasing their DVD. All right, moving on from there, I want to make sure I remind you to connect with us through all social media outlets that we have available to you. These are Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and our forum. Uh, the YouTube channel is starting to grow. I'm starting to really do a lot more videos and uh, finding ways to come up with more videos to do for you. Just uploaded another one yesterday. Uh, of course, the day before I had done one on rifle shooting form. Uh, yesterday I did one uh, that we got uploaded on uh, Success and Failure with Corn this year. 
So I'm trying to make them very, I'm trying to make them interesting, and there'll be a lot more to come. In fact, I'm expecting today to show up at the front door a new shotgun microphone for my Canon Vixia camera, and that should improve the audio quality. I've been using a, uh, a wireless mic that was quite expensive and doesn't work very dadgone well. Uh, it gets a lot of static and like just this weird sound in the background no matter what frequency I set it to. So I'm going to give this uh, the shotgun mic a, a try, and it might really do. All the reviews I've read on it uh, came out really good. It's made for the camera, so hopefully it'll at least cut down wind noise and background noise like sirens and airplanes, which whenever I do stuff around here in uh, Arlington, it seems that uh, DFW Airport launches a fleet of airliners, and the little airport over here launches a bunch of low-flying Cessnas the second I turn the camera on. It's like they, well, they're watching me. Maybe it's the Black Ops guys. I don't know. But anyway, check out check out all those things. Make sure you start. I'm trying to do more and more on Twitter and Facebook, folks. It's hard for me. I'm an old guy. I'm not in this uh, in the you know the tweeting thing, but uh, I'm doing what I can for you. So hook up with me there and hook up with the show there. We have a Facebook fan page. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. A bunch of free videos, a bunch of free ebooks, a bunch of great stuff, a bunch of great discounts. New discounts being added all the time. I mentioned yesterday. I'll mention again today. We just added the end of Fed coin project, seven percent off all your orders from end of Fed. That's seven percent off the purchase of silver, folks. That's a that's a pretty dadgone good uh, discount there. So uh, consider joining the MSB. One last time, I'm going to throw out um, an invitation for pictures. For the uh, Revolution Is You video slideshow that I'm putting together to promote that song, uh, I have plenty of pictures of people with uh, guns at the range. I have plenty of people with pictures gardening. This is what I really need. I need pictures from people that are building stuff. I need pictures from people that are doing anything with alternative energy. I'd like some more pictures of people fishing. I think that's a great thing to add in there. Uh, and I would maybe like some pictures of just some basic outdoor activities, camping and things like that. I want pictures with people in them, please. And then one more thing. A lot of you guys send me pictures, and I don't know what kind of email program you're using or something, but you're doing some kind of creative embedding of the photograph instead of just attaching it as a file. Please don't do that. When you do that, and the email comes through to me, and I try to save the picture, it tries to save it as a bitmap instead of a JPEG, which means it totally destroys the quality of the picture. So please attach your pictures as a file. If you can't do that for some reason, if you can put it at Flickr or any place like that, tell me where it is. I'll go, just send me a link. I'll go download it. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but again, send your pictures with the word photograph or photos or something like that in the subject line. And um, the other part of that for me uh, is you send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Folks, whenever you hear say me, say email. That's my email. It's as easy as it gets. Jack at the show you listen to everyday.com, right? Okay, so with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic. went a little bit long there, but I had a couple announcements for you. Um, let's talk about guerrilla gardening and what it actually means. Let's start out with maybe something easier to define that everybody can agree upon. What is guerrilla war? And how does that apply to gardening? Um, let's take the first part. What is guerrilla war? Well, guerrilla war can be defined with a whole bunch of different things added to it, but it always starts out the same way. It's unconventional or irregular warfare. And that's really the crux of guerrilla warfare. So, uh, you know, if we ask Wikipedia, they say it's conflicts in which small groups of combatants use military tactics like ambush and raids to harass a larger force. Right? That's the Wikipedia definition. At least it is today until somebody gets in there and changes it. Uh, interesting thing about Wikipedia, the way anybody can just go in there and change things. But 
you know, that's a pretty well-accepted definition of guerrilla warfare. If you were taking a course at a, a war college and the professor asked the question before lecturing and you raised your hand and gave that answer, he'd probably say, well done. So what we're really down to is irregular and unconventional warfare. I want you to think about something, though, with that, the way that that terminology has changed. During the American Revolution, Washington's forces and all of the uh, American forces fought what was considered at the time a guerrilla war. Now, what they did was they did set up in ambushes and things like that, but it wasn't necessarily because they had a smaller force. It's because it was a more effective tactic and they knew the land. Uh, they would move around in, in units with scouts, and they would determine where the people were moving, and they would go and intercept them. Uh, but what I want you to realize is you take away the, the muskets and the Kentucky rifles, take away the cannons, uh, take away the horses, replace them with tanks and howitzers and, uh, and, and uh, small arms that we have today, like the, uh, uh, the M16 and, and the M4 carbine, uh, replace everything with modern equipment, and the way that our soldiers fight from America today is very much similar to the way that people fought in the American Revolution on the side of the Americans during the American Revolution. But that's not considered guerrilla warfare today. That's, conven that's today's conventional warfare. The guerrilla war of 1776 has become the conventional war of 2010, and it's been the conventional war... Oh, I would say since at least World War II. The conventional forces stopped lining up and just engaging each other in a field around World War II. And it happened in between in other times. And even a lot of the Civil War, the American Civil War, there was a lot of that two lines meeting each other. But there was an awful lot of skirmishing that went on that was more like what we think of today. And at the time, it was probably considered a guerrilla warfare tactic. Today, it's considered smart warfare. No idiot lines up his troops in perfect lines and columns and sends them out to die straight in enemy fire. That would be that that would be considered dumb today. But in 1700, it was conventional war, and anybody that did anything different was a guerrilla. Oh, we're supposed to be talking about guarding. So why am I talking about warfare? Because I want you to get your your head around the concept of what irregular means and how it evolves and changes. So one of the things that I think a lot of people think of when they think of guerrilla guarding, especially if you're not a survivalist, uh, if you're not a modern survivalist even, if you're new to prepping, even if you consider yourself a survivalist, but that's a six-month-old thing in your life for you, and you've seen like TV shows, uh, mainstream media, and you see what these hippies are doing out in San Francisco or in New York City, and you see these guys go out, and they go to a highway median out on pro public property, and they plant a bunch of flowers and things, and they plant something that's beautiful, but not really productive. It's nothing you can eat, or if you can eat it, it's like, well, you can eat it, but I didn't really think about that when I planted it, dude. Right? I mean, that's how the hippie guy is. And I'm not putting the hippie guy, the hippies are cool, you know? Sometimes they get on my nerves and annoy me, but overall, hippies are, you know, they're fine. But, you know, that's, that's their attitude. They're, oh, man, I just want to make something beautiful, right? So... They put the stuff out there, so maybe they put something out there like yucca. Very, very drought tolerant, doesn't need a lot of water, and grows native species. And yeah, you can eat it, but they don't put it there because you can eat it. They put it there because it would grow well and get these pretty red flame flowers or white flowers or what have you. And they put all this stuff in and they try to beautify the city and turn something that's, that's ugly and vacant into something aesthetically pleasing. And that's what people think of when they think of guerrilla gardening. And if you go Google guerrilla gardening, 
90% of what you find is that tactic. I'm not putting those people down. There's nothing wrong with that. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm glad they're doing it. Are they breaking the law? Technically, yes. Does anybody seem to care? It doesn't seem so. I'm going to talk more about breaking the law in the future because I have a feeling that some of the things that we may do that are a little bit more productive from a food standpoint in a different type of area may be considered uh, not just breaking the law, but frowned upon and uh, maybe prosecuted a little bit more aggressively than a hippie in San Francisco. I think the average San Francisco beat cop has more to worry about than whether some long hair is planting a few yucca plants in a highway median. And uh, there's, I think there's a lot of ways to adapt gorilla gardening behind that, uh, beyond that. Because just like guerrilla warfare evolves and changes, guerrilla gardening evolves and changes. So to me, if you are working on a piece of property that you actually own or have permission to use, but you're not plowing fields, you're still a guerrilla because you're involved in irregular gardening or unconventional gardening. And what I mean by that is when I go up to my place in Arkansas and... I look and I find a plot of uh, blackberry bushes and brambles, and I go in there and I clear out anything competing with them, and I put rocks around them to help channel water, and I create little uh, depressions and things like that to help channel water, and I mulch them. To me, that's as much a guerrilla gardening tactic as the hippie planting the yucca plant in the middle of the highway. Because... Tell me it's not unconventional. Tell me it's not irregular. Tell me it doesn't fly in the face of everything that modern agriculture, whether it's home-based agriculture, gardens and raised beds and things like that, or commercial agriculture does, stands for, and operates by. The native species is considered an enemy. It must be destroyed and replaced with something better because man knows better. So we cut the blackberry native bush down and we plant the thornless blackberry that we buy from Home Depot. That's conventional. Encouraging the growth of a native species is unconventional. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But that's just the beginning. If I go in, and I, which I did the last time I was up there, just this last week, I go into places where there's shade, but it's modeled shade, and the light's able to come through on a forest edge, and I find a nice depression that stays moist even when everything around it's dry. And I plant a few beans in there and I allow them to climb up another vine or bushes or trees. And I let that bean go back to being what it originally was, a forest plant, which is why it has those great big leaves. Well, that's also unconventional. If I have a neighbor who has a great huge woodlot and doesn't have a piece of uh, house on the property, he just has a vacant lot, I contact that landowner, and I start doing similar tactics on his land, with an understanding that when he sells it or builds on it or whatever, that I'm no longer going to be able to do that possibly, but I'm going to use it while it's there, unconventional tactic, guerrilla gardening. If I'm a hermit, up in the middle of the mountains, whether it's a national forest where I'm really not supposed to do it or any other piece of land that I can, you know, hermit on and just kind of live off-grid. And if I want to live that way, if I'm doing anything to either encourage native plants or grow my own or plant things, it's a guerrilla gardening tactic. The Indians, to me, the Native American Indians were the original guerrilla gardeners. They definitely had what you would look at as a more conventional agriculture tactic. Things like the Three Sisters Garden. They'd build a great huge mound, plant a bunch of corn in a circle around it, 
plant beans next to the corn, let the, the beans climb up the corn, and plant rotting squash on the ground in between the beans. That created a full nutritional profile. And they didn't grow one of these things, folks. They would have, instead of a big field full of straight things, they would have a huge area of nothing but these mounds everywhere. And they would also plant them <clears throat> using succession. And by doing that, what they would do is maybe they'd plant 10 mounds today, wait two weeks, plant another 10 mounds, wait two weeks, plant another 10 mounds. While a lot of the production would be stored, a lot of the production would be used fresh, and they would spread the production out that way, especially with the corn. Uh, because beans, um, you know, they, or actually the, the, the corn and the beans. Squash, they kind of produce all season long once you get them going. But by using succession, you handle pests better as well because you end up with some late-season squash that are less affected by things like squash vine borers. You get some early production in before they hit you. So there's a lot of that in it. But again, if you went and looked where a tribe of maybe a couple hundred uh, natives were growing these things, it wouldn't look like a modern agricultural field. But it would be really obvious this is an agricultural production thing. There would be multiple of these things. They would be spaced out rather regularly. Uh, they would be designed for harvest and growth. But at the same time, the Native Americans were doing things like they would go into the forest and they would find certain plants that they knew were edible and useful. And they would look at that plant and they would understand the, 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 the intelligence of nature. And instead of saying, well, let's uh, dig this up and start screwing around with it and putting it in our mound uh, garden or any of there's just tremendous numbers of gardens that we can learn from that Native American peoples, and when I say Native American, I'm talking from Alaska to uh, Patagonia. Uh, so South America, North America, Central, everything in between. Maybe one day I'll do a show just on their gardens. I think that would be a cool show. Uh, maybe I'll try to do that. It won't be next week. I'll tell you about that toward the end. But... Um, it's maybe the week after I could do a show like that. That sounds really cool. So the natives had, you know, those conventional, what they would consider their conventional agriculture would be very unconventional today. But they also had this, these, this way of looking at things and going, if that grows there already, all I have to do is remove the competition and enhance the growth environment. And there, especially in, in California, in the, uh, in, in the desert valleys there, uh, semi-desert valleys especially, there were all types of plants. Plants like manzanito, which basically means tiny apple, was one of the main food plants. And these trees would grow all over the place, wild. And I don't think we've really understood until the last hundred years how much the natives were doing because they did so little and it had such a big effect. And what I meant by that is they, when, when we first you know, started to colonize that area, we would find these plants everywhere. And it seemed like nobody did anything for them. And for 50 years, they were fine. And then they've started, in recent years, to decline in health. Over you know, 100 years, 150 years since the native people have been removed from the area, these plants just aren't doing so well on their own anymore. And all it was is these guys were going in and they were doing little, tiny tweaks. And when they saw that new baby plant coming up, they would shelter it and protect it and help it become a mature plant. So a lot of these plants maybe live 100 years, but the mature plants are dying now. You know, they've had that 100 years without the help of man. And we didn't understand what the native peoples were really doing. And of course, they weren't going to tell us, because part of what made it take so long in our war against the natives, which was, to me, a, a horrible atrocity, but it did happen, and you know, if you want to call it that, we won. And what made them able to, ha hang, uh, to, to be there so long 
among the tactics was guerrilla gardening. So they certainly weren't going to tell us what they were doing when it was the way that they were able to survive while being pursued. So hopefully that's just changed up a little bit, the way you think about the topic as a whole. Moving on from there, let's talk about breaking the law. Do guerrilla gardeners break the law? Yes and no. Uh, if I get permission from you to go do guerrilla gardening on your property, obviously I'm not breaking any law. If I'm a hippie in San Francisco going out into a public piece of property and growing stuff there without permission, technically I'm breaking the law. If I go into the National Forest and start planting beans and squash in the National Forest, um, I'm not sure, but I'm about 99.99999% that I'm breaking the law, and I could end up in a lot of trouble with a forest ranger. But I think that it really comes down to why are you doing it, where are you doing it, what is the purpose, what is the intent, and do you have a choice? And what I mean by that is right now, things are pretty good out there. I know everybody thinks that we're still in the, the worst crisis since the Great Depression, and in some ways we are. But when it comes right down to it, there's no major you know, trouble out there that prevents you from living your life. If you want to go down to 7-Eleven and buy a Slurpee right now and a, and a bag of beef jerky, as long as you have a few bucks, you can go do that. But there may come a time when we're in a real-world large-scale survival situation. And in that point in time, you may not give a damn that it's technically against the law to plant a few lima beans in a certain place and a few other things. And by spreading out your crops throughout a large area and being able to go and take that guerrilla tactic of, you know, the way the guerrilla would work in warfare, shoot, communicate, move out, right? We always used to be one of the things we'd say in the Army. Shoot, communicate, move on out, right? Well, and that's what it was all about, is getting in there with your small group, taking your shots, communicating with each other, and getting the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Well, with guerrilla gardening, once you have your crops in place and planted, or even while you're planting them, it's about moving in, planting a small area, and getting the hell out of Dodge. So that when you come back to harvest, you can be there quickly, you know where everything is, you run a route, and the next day you go a different route, the next day you go a different route, and that way you're constantly taking a little bit from everywhere. Your pest problems are also a lot less. You have two or three bean vines growing in a forest edge surrounded by all this native plant life. The typical pest of the bean has no idea the bean's even there. It's hard for it to even find it. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of advantage to that tactic. And again, in a, in a, you know, a real world breakdown, it's also advantageous because some folks have to email me every day and tell me, oh, you'll have a garden and a shit hit the fan, it makes you a target. They're right and they're wrong. They're wrong because they're being moronic. It's, what they're basically saying is, I don't want to plant a garden, so don't do it, you know. But to me, in a shit hit the fan, breathing makes you a target. Being a human being that's alive makes you a target. Because you must have some way that you're sustaining your ability to convert oxygen into CO2. So I'm not going to not have a garden because of that. But... In that breakdown, there could come a point where even if you have the garden, even if you're able to defend and protect the garden, it could be taken, and the production could be taken from it. So by having these little satellite places all over the place, you know, that would give you the ability to keep production up and not have all of it on display or easily interfered with. Even on your own property, let's say you own 10 acres, and you have an acre of it cleared and the rest of it's wooded by creating small clearings and things like that. You could have food throughout your entire property 
And the passerby would never even know it's there. This is also a guerrilla survival tactic. The reason I bring this up under the law issue, though, is it may be a really good idea for you to develop this skill set wherever you can do it legally today because there could come a day, it may be a very dark day, it may be the law of you know infinite probability on the downside that's one of the least likely disasters. Because remember, the bigger the disaster, the higher the impact, the less probable the event. That's a, that's a direct, uh, uh, what do you call it, ratio. Uh, what I call it is inverse relationship between probability and impact. Most probable disaster, you lose your job tomorrow. That's probably the most probable disaster anybody will ever experience. Job loss. Impact, relatively low. You know, I know it doesn't seem low to you at the time, but you can find another job. You can go out and wait tables if you have to deliver, whatever. You know, you can find a way to at least keep on breathing. High impact disaster. Um, total, complete economic collapse of the United States. Looks more and more probable every day, I know, but the reality is the probability of it happening to the point where there's nothing left at all is a very low probability. The impact is massive. And under a large-scale you know, solar flare that shuts down the electrical grid and just wipes out half of modern technology, uh, things like that, these skills may save your life. In an individual level, if you ever have to exist off-grid for whatever reason, and I'll leave it at that, these skills may save your life. These skills may keep you alive. And in those types of scenarios, you may not care that you're not supposed to plant a bean somewhere. So what I'm saying is you don't have to break the law today to learn the skill set. Just like, let me put it to you in another way. This is a perfect way to think about it. We train on primitive uh, wilderness survival skills to do things like set uh, a deadfall trap. In many places, it's completely, totally illegal to set deadfall traps. Even where they have trapping seasons and trapping licenses and trapping regulations, you better be going in there with approved traps, setting up a, a, a payout deadfall. Absolutely not acceptable. Cannot be done. But we practice the skill anyway. Now, once the skill is developed, if we ever end up in a situation where our survival depends on it because we're lost in the wilderness, damn the law, I've got to eat. Well, I'm just saying maybe we look at guerrilla gardening the same way. That it's something that we develop the skill set with through a practice. And unlike the practice deadfall, which is, unless you're doing it on your own property again where you can do it, highly unproductive. You, you, all you get is the skill and maybe a crushed figure or two before you get it right. If you practice guerrilla gardening with productive crops in places where it's legal, you get the production of the food uh, and you get it ongoing. So I just wanted to maybe make that analogy for you so you, you'll see it a little bit differently. And, you know, why is it a survival technique? Because you got to eat. I mean, this is something that I talk about a lot. Yesterday I did a whole show on shotguns, so you know I'm a gun guy. Um, I believe that everybody that can carry concealed should carry concealed. I think the more licensed, law-abiding citizens out there with concealed carry we have, the less crime we'll have. I believe statistics bear that out. I believe that every time a woman is assaulted in a laundromat and she pulls out a pistol and shoots a guy in the head that tried to rape her in a, in a, in a laundromat at night, there's one less rapist on the street and there's a, about ten that think twice before they do it. So... I'm all about guns. I'm also telling you that if we have that big shit hit the fan breakdown, you know what? It's going to be a dangerous place, and you better have a way to defend what you have. So knowing how to defend yourself, knowing how to use weapons, all of that stuff, great stuff, better do it, make it part of your survival. 
But food's a bigger part. Because I'll ask you the question I've asked many times. How many fights have you been in in your life? Physical altercations. And if you are not a boxer, or, I, I don't want to talk about the ring, karate tournaments and stuff like that. Fights. Real honest-to-God fights. And if that number is like 10, uh, if, you, and if you take out the schoolyard stuff when you were a kid, maybe you need to go see a psychologist. Right? So unless you're a soldier and you're talking about fights in, in the streets of Baghdad or, or Fallujah, or unless you are a combatant that goes in and, and, and spars with Taekwondo, you take that stuff away, most people are going to find they've been in actually very few physical altercations in their life. And if they've been in a lot, they've probably brought it on themselves. And that's just reality. Now let me ask you the other question. How many times a day for every year of your life have you eaten and most people will say an average of three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and a few snacks. And some of us, including me, on occasion, a few too many snacks. So, obviously, the priority is to make sure that we can eat. Because you can't eat a bullet. Or if you do, you do it once and you take a dirt nap. So, to me, guerrilla gardening is a survival skill because it gives us the ability to produce food for a long time in an unconventional and dangerous situation where food might be in short supply. So I think it's as much a skill to develop now as how to build that payout deadfall uh, trap. Absolutely. Or how to uh, build uh, you know, a pigeon trap. Or how to, do, how, to, how to shoot a gun accurately. I think it's, it's, it's not the single golden arrow, definitely. But it's another arrow in the quiver that I think needs to be uh, developed. Let's talk about the tools you need to be a guerrilla gardener. And here's the beauty. You need very few tools. Um, I'll put up a video link today that I've put up before of a guy named Big John, Lip John Lipscomb uh, doing some guerrilla gardening. Now, this guy, I'll warn you in advance, he's a New World Order, dyed-in-the-wool, true believer, but I think he's a very good survivalist. I think he's a real patriot. I think he's a great American. He also does a, a, a radio show, and I think he does a pretty damn good one. It just is a little bit out there in the New World Order. So in this video, you'll hear him talking about things like being spotted from overhead and things like that. And I'm not saying he's completely wrong. I'm just saying it's not what I'm focused on. But the techniques he uses are very similar to a lot of the techniques that I use. Um, I think maybe I could teach him a thing or two, and I know I've learned a thing or two through his video, so I'll link to that video. Uh, but you'll see him with a bucket and some fertilizer and a couple pieces of wire and some shovels. And I'm okay with the way that he has that little kit set up, and that's fine. And I think most of what he's doing is on a piece of property he owns just by the way that it looks. But my view is I'd rather be out there, and if you're going to gorilla garden, even if you're going to do it in a place where it's okay, you better be preparing for the day where you might have to do it in a time when it's not okay or you do want it to be concealed. And maybe this is where we actually overlap John and I a little bit. So I would want to look more like a backpacker, just like somebody moving through the woods doing whatever, not really being obvious. So if you're walking around carrying a bucket, um, I think it kind of it, it, it becomes an object of focus. So to me that doesn't make you a good gorilla if you're out there with a bucket. Because if I see a guy walking through the woods with a backpack, it's another hiker. If I see a guy walking through the woods with a bucket, you know what I see? I don't know what I see. But I see something to focus on. So I look at more of a gorilla gardener kit being like a traditional wilderness kit with some specialized items. One thing I always carry, and I carry this whether I'm out in the woods doing this or in my backyard, is I have a set of shears made by Fiskers. 
and uh, I keep them in a case uh, that I got from a company called Corona. Both of these are inexpensive and were purchased at Home Depot. Maybe I'll post some pictures or do a video on these later today uh, when that new mic comes. But they're basically a pair of lopper shears. So they can shear fairly large branches, but they can also clip very fine uh, clippings as well. Uh, and I have that, uh, that sheath uh, so as they're on my belt. I carry that everywhere I go. That's part of my survival kit for gorilla guarding, let's say. Uh, the other thing is I definitely carry a trowel, and I am a big fan of the, the Fiskars now makes these trowels. They sell for like a dollar. They're made out of like a polycarbite plastic. And uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll put all this stuff together. Uh, I don't know if I'll do it in a video because it's probably going to be part of an article I'm going to do for Ron uh, Hood's Survival Magazine. So I don't know if I'll put that video out until that article comes out to kind of keep the content uh, to there. But they have these little uh, Fisker shelves you can buy them at Walmart, Home Depot, whatever. It's all for a buck. The reason I like them is they're very, very strong. They're almost impossible to break. And they are, uh, they're, they're cheap and light. So instead of carrying one really good shovel, which still can break, I like to carry two of these, and I still carry less weight. And uh, that's a lot for the digging and stuff. I also like to carry kind of a little sort of hoe on one side, pick on the other side, uh, handle that can be swung type tool. I don't know what the hell you call that, or I would tell you. That's another thing I'll put together in the video when I eventually do it. And uh, that tool is, is highly, highly useful uh, for when you're digging in dirt that's too hard or you're trying to pull a rock out or something like that. So that's another tool that I like to, uh, to carry. Uh, I also like to carry if you, one of the little weeding tools, the shorter ones, that basically look like a long screwdriver but with a fork thing on the end of it. That's also quite useful for doing things, especially when you get into planting larger seeds like beans where you can just basically put it in the ground and kind of rotate it almost like a drill, but more like a big wobble rotation. And, and they call that type of hole in gardening anyway a drill. So instead of having to dig a whole bunch of stuff up and try to mess with the ground a lot, you can, you can drill that. I also carry some basic uh, wilderness gear when I'm out there. Uh, make sure I have a source of water and water purification. All the stuff that you would normally carry. Uh, I, I carry cord. I definitely am a big believer in wire. Uh, not just a small piece of wire. I like to get um, wire that you would use either to hang pictures or make snares out of. It's also great for creating trellising that's very difficult to see. So when you watch John's video, for instance, you'll see him plant like a tomato plant and stack some branches around it so that the tomato has something to trellis on. Well, one of the things that I've done is take this really thin wire and used it to take like a branch, lay it on the side of a tree so that it looks just like it fell there. But then you take a little bit of wire and wire it up there so that it doesn't fall off of there when the next windstorm comes through. And that way you can train beans up onto a tree. Or you can train any vining crop up onto a tree. And to the passerby, it looks like absolutely nothing. So these are some of the things, I think I'll leave it there, but it gives you some idea of some of the stuff you'd want to carry with you. John's big on carrying some fertilizer and giving a little bit of fertilization to the area. I am too, but I don't use, uh, I use organic fertilizer wherever I go. I figure if I ever do go somewhere I'm not supposed to, even unknowingly, and I get caught, I'm less likely to take grief for carrying a little package of compost mixed with some uh, organic commercial produced organic fertilizer. I just also think that stuff works better and if I'm going to be out in a natural environment I don't want to leave anything behind that's not natural. 
So what I'll generally do for fertilizers, I put together a little can. Uh, the small coffee cans work great for this because you don't need a lot uh, for doing this. And I'll fill that up with a mixture of about 50% compost uh, and about 50% soil. The other thing, though, that you have to realize is when you're out in a forest environment, you know, it depends on where you're at. If you're kind of a, 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 a more uh, harsh environment, you may need to do that. In another environment, you may simply carry an extra small container uh, and carry the container that you're bringing full of nothing but the organic fertilizer. Because if you're in a forest environment, you've got a lot of great soil already. It's never been grown, and that's one of the advantages. You go into any forest edge and pull the leaf litter back and look at that dirt, and it's beautiful. If it's thin, the other thing with that little empty container that you can do is you go to a point uh, for a little bit away from there, spread some leaf litter out, scrape some of that forest soil into that container, recover your leaf litter, cover your trace, leave no trace, that type of, of attitude, and bring that little bit of excess uh, forest soil over to the area that you're actually planting and mix in a little bit of your uh, organic fertilizer. That just kind of gives things a kickstart. You don't really need it in a lot of situations. As for what kind of seeds to plant, I'm a big believer in wherever they will grow well using, you know, an heirloom variety, open pollinated variety seed, because that way not only are you growing these crops, you're also creating seed stores. And think about it this way. If you go out in these harsher environments, you don't have this place where it's watered every day, you create your own little water channels and things like that, but the plant has to go two, three weeks on its own with no help whatsoever. And you go into that environment and you develop these plants over two or three seasons, you're developing a seed that adapts to that environment. And that's really cool. Now, what about wildlife predation? People have asked me, well, when do you do that? Don't sometimes the deer come and eat your... Yeah, it happens. That's why you do a lot of it. And every time you do it, you do little tiny clumps spread out all over the place. You absolutely, for a multitude of reasons, don't want a lot of these in a small space. You don't want it to look like a garden. You don't want it to attract the attention of humans, mammals, or insects. You know, that, that, that's, that's your big threats out there. So when you look at modern agriculture, one of the reasons that we have a problem is that we have a field 50 miles long, 20 miles wide of nothing but soybeans. So do you think any kind of pest that preys on soybeans might show up there? Of course they would. But if we have a little clump of four or five soybean bushes growing in the middle of a forest edge, again, I'm not saying soybeans are necessarily what you need to plant, but that is a lot less likely uh, to attract the attention of any of those things. Less likely to attract a deer, less likely to uh, attract insects, and less likely to attract attract uh, human presence that you don't want, even if it's simply a human presence that would go, oh, look at that. That's growing out in the middle of nowhere. And this is something you'll have to understand. Unless you're on your own private property, if you're on property that other people use at all, even if you have permission to be there, even if what you're doing is legal, if someone comes along, sees your bean plant, and picks your beans, they are not stealing from you. Because it's not yours. That's part of being a gorilla gardener is to understand what you're putting out there is available to anything. Hopefully, you'll get some harvest too. What does that mean? Plant more than you're going to need. I also want to talk about one thing I consider to be the gorilla gardener's secret weapon, and that's the seed ball. The seed ball is one of the coolest inventions that I've ever seen in my life, and there's some good YouTube videos on how to do them, and I'll, I'll put some YouTube videos up on how to do those today. So what is a seed ball or a seed bomb? 
Well, they can really be any size, and they can be used to spread any type of seed out there, but some stuff's better than others. And generally, they work really good with smaller seeds, uh, and they work really good with plants that are quite hardy, that can handle things out there on their own. And really, the easy way to do it, and you need very fine clay, and this can be clay soil. You don't have to go to the store and buy it or anything. So, But you need clay soil, and you need uh, good fertile soil, like compost mixture, uh, maybe some peat moss mixed in with some potting soil, what have you. And you need water, and you need seed. Well, the standard ratio is about five parts of clay to three parts of soil to one part of seed and one to two parts water or whatever works water-wise to get kind of a, a clay-like consistency that's easy to work but yet not soaking wet. And you mix all of that together. And the big thing with the clay is the clay needs to be pounded so it's like a fine powder. That's, that's the only issue with the clay. And once you get all this mixed together with your seed... You, you roll these up in little balls and you set them out in the sun and they dry into little hard marbles. And they can be a little marble the size of a shooter marble, right? Or they can be a great big this size grenade. It's up to you how big you make them depending on where you're putting them. But here's the deal. That hard piece of clay, you throw that out on the ground somewhere, what happens? Absolutely nothing. It just sits there. But what does it sit there until? It sits there until there's a rain. And this is why I like smaller ones than bigger ones. A smaller one's more likely to break up faster in that first rain. So you throw these little things into certain places where you want stuff to grow, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden the rain comes and the clay basically melts. And you have this little pocket of fertile soil and seed that just kind of melts into the surface. And then the little seed sprouts. And it gets off like a rocket and starts growing. And, I mean, you could do this with anything. You could, you could do this with buckwheat, right? Buckwheat would be actually probably a pretty cool crop to do it with, especially in a field that's, uh, that's not really got much growing in it yet. Uh, but it could be done with anything, and it could be done anywhere. It could be done with lots of different uh, seed mixtures. Uh, you could put together 20 or 30 seeds into one batch of seed balls and just pitch them somewhere and observe what successfully grows. It could be to, to colonize or it could be for experimentation. You do have to be careful with them because they're so effective, uh, whatever you've planted with them can easily overtake an area. So if, it, if you're going to plant a lot of them uh, and, and with a plant that can t overtake an area, you better be damn sure that, one, it's okay for you to do it, and, two, that you actually want that area overtaken. And it's been, this technique has been used uh, by agriculturists, permaculturists, and guerrilla gardeners, and there's overlap between all three. And it is one of the coolest things, and I definitely think it's one of those skill sets to put as an arrow in that quiver. To, so I think everybody out there should make some seed balls up and give them a try and see how they work out. Understand something, though. This ain't a good time of year for it. It's June. On Saturday, here in Arlington, it is estimated that it is going to be 105 degrees. So while you can practice this now and maybe get them ready and have them maybe do them with some seeds that are a short-term thing that would work well in your fall climate, for most, not all, but most of the country, it's going to be hard to get anything to germinate outside right now. Right now, if you want anything going into your garden, odds are the best that you can do is to germinate it indoors. And as soon as it germinates, a lot of stuff is heat hardy and you give it a little bit of protection. You can put it right out there and it'll start growing like mad. Squash, beans, stuff like that. Um, a lot of your beans you can get to germinate outside in the heat right now. That's the one plant that you can get to germinate pretty consistently. But even that, it would really help to provide some shade netting over them until they get sprouted or what have you. I can tell you this, things like carrots, 
beets, chard, lettuce, um, arugula, all of your small, more delicate seeds that are somewhat cold hardy, that stuff you can put in the ground, you can do everything right, and when it's 100 degrees out, it ain't germinating. So if you're going to make seed balls for use anytime soon, you really need to think about what, what can actually germinate in this heat, and the answer is for like the south right now, the deep south, is not a lot. So it may be a future project that you can start working on today. Uh, but there you go. There's my little primer on seed balls today. I want to kind of get toward wrapping today's show up. So let's talk about a few uh, other things. I want to talk about the big one is water. Uh, people think, well, if I plant stuff out in the middle of the woods, I'm not going to be there to water it every day. You're not. But I want you to think about this. Out there in the middle of the woods, you've got all this lush growth. No one waters it. It uses the natural water that's there. One thing you have working for you right away, if you do some forest-style gorilla gardening, is the forest floor is like a lake. It really is. I don't think people realize this. When you walk in native forest that hasn't been screwed with by man, you're walking on a lake. And you can, How could that be? Well, if we were to take 12 inches of topsoil from a good productive forest, even in a rather dry time of the year, and squeeze it out, we would end up about an inch of water in depth out of that foot, an inch. So if you're standing in the middle of a 40,000 acre forest, you're actually standing in a one inch deep 40,000 acre lake. So do some math. It's a two inch deep 20,000 acre lake. right? It's a four inch deep 10,000 acre lake. That's quite a bit of water now, isn't it? That's how much water is there. And that's how all those plants are sustained. You say, where does that water come from? It comes from rain, it comes from runoff, it comes from springs, it comes from all of those things, but it's retained because of the huge amounts of organic matter in that forest soil. So that's already on your side. The other thing that you do is you simply look for places that are low-lying, depressed areas where water naturally flows to. And if there aren't any, you create them. And if there are some, you encourage them. You could do things like putting out hard, uh, hard substances, Rocks, especially slate, is great for this. And if you lay slate down in an area, angled slightly downward toward a center, and plant in the center of that, you end up with an awful lot of water channeled into there. I think the way John put it in his video is something like, if you put one foot of planting and you have um, four feet around it that have been uh, you know, covered with something hard, you've increased the water in the center by a factor of four. Because all the water that falls there, instead of seeping in there, is channeled down to the area where you've planted. And there's a lot of ways to do things like that. Micro-swaling, I think, is a huge one. You come into an area, uh, you go in there, you find a level spot, you put a small little ditch on contour in there, just a microcosm swale. And on the downside of that swale is where you do your planting. You can cover that swale so it's not even seen. It can be a very shallow depression. It still has a marked result. And it can be covered with leaf litter and things like that so that it's never seen. Uh, this is survival gardening on, on a new level. This is survival gardening in a covert way. It's also effective. I want you to understand there's a blend here. It's not just about being able to hide everything. It's about how effective it is. It's about being able to take a 10-acre piece of land and have little pieces of stuff growing all over it, completely hidden, not just from people, but from predators and insects. And having the ability to basically take a walk through the woods once in a while and come back with a bunch of food to eat. Um, let's talk about some of the plants that make really good candidates for doing this. To me, I'm not big on the tomatoes for this. It, it can be done. John says he does it. I've had so much issue, and I think it's partly he's further north than me. Here in the south, 
We have so much issue with tomatoes, even when we're caring for them, with blight, with wilt disease. Uh, it's just, it's hard to keep a tomato uh, successfully growing. So I'm not as big a fan of that. They're also a sun-loving plant that means that they, they really need a lot of solar exposure. So as you start to move into the forest edges, their success rates would, would in my opinion, tend to decline. Now, maybe... Uh, John would differ with that. Maybe he's had more success than me with it. But I really haven't had a lot of success with tomatoes. Two of the best. Uh, the, I, I started trying this after I met and learned from Bill Wilson about squash and beans being forest plants. If you look at a squash plant, the leaves are huge. Massive, as big as your face. Most bean plants, especially uh, trellising beans, pole beans, big, huge leaves. And he said to me, why do you think those leaves are so big? So, I really never thought about it. He said, because they're forest plants. They're designed to crawl up the edge of, of trees and bushes. They're designed to be in that transition stage between the brush layer and the tree layer. And they get good but, minim, you know, good but not perfect solar exposure. The bigger the leaf, the bigger the solar collection. Just like a solar panel on your house. A 250-watt panel has generally got more surface area than a 100-watt panel. So that big leaf has the ability to do more with less. And I thought, wow, well that should make it a good candidate for the stuff that I'm doing in the woods. Absolutely, especially those edges, and that's where they thrive. And you can come into that edge line where you've got that tangled, gnarled mass, clear out a small area with your loppers, plant some squash, and get them growing up into the trees, and they do beautifully in there. In fact, they do better than they ever do in a field. As much as people say squash love heat, if you go out and look at your squash plants on a very hot day, uh, sitting in the sun, the leaves are wilted to the ground. Now, as soon as the sun goes down, they come right back up as long as they're getting enough water. But what I found is squash plants in the forest don't look that way. They don't look that way at all. They look healthy and vibrant even in the hot parts of the day as long as, again, they're getting enough water, which you can do with some of the techniques we just talked about. So those are two of my big ones. I also have found that especially if you'll sprout them at home, so you've got, now you're carrying little plants out into the woods with you, but it's, it's very doable, because they can be very small, and you put them basically like, uh, one of the good things to put them in is like kind of like a, a box, uh, like, a, like a pencil, old, old style pencil box, because they're not going to be in there for very long. Lettuce, uh, especially lettuce that's already going to be a good variety to grow in the summertime, in the summer in the forest does well, in places where it's mostly but not completely shaded. So that kind of further in from the edge, that clearing that lets some sunlight in, great place for lettuce, that will be highly predated on by deer. So one of the ways you can minimize that is by simply kind of stacking uh, a brush, uh, naked brush, you know, like sticks and brambles and twigs kind of around it, because that way the deer are less likely to even find it. Because if there's only one or two plants in there, uh, they tend to stay away from it. Your scent from being there also is a deterrent to the deer. Uh, I know a lot of suburban people are going, I don't understand what you mean by scent deterrent deer, because I got them in my backyard, and they've gotten so brave, they're chasing the dogs out of the yard. And there are places where that's happened. But out in the, the woods, the real woods where the deer are wild, your scent has a big detraction. So one of the things you can do to deter deer in, in a wild situation is whenever you get a haircut, ask if you can have a bag full of, of hair clippings. And I know it's kind of gross to have somebody else's hair clippings of some people. So, you know, when I get my hair cut, it's a pretty, so I, I get, take my own. And if you sprinkle some human hair around an area, that's a great deer deterrent. Again, it won't work in your suburban populations 
where the deer become accustomed to human scent. But used in spot applications in more wild areas, it's a very effective deterrent to your deer. Uh, so those are just some things. You can pretty much do anything. What about perennials? Well, perennials, I think that you're better off trying to stick to things that are mostly native or native to areas with very similar climates because you're asking that plant now to establish itself and survive throughout the seasons. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff for that. Blackberries, blueberries in the right environment, cranberries, uh, bush cherry. I think Nanking bush cherry, which is an exotic species from uh, the Orient, uh, I think is a great candidate. I've never done it, but I think I'm going to try it on my property up in Arkansas. Not, not in one of my cleared you know, permaculture type areas, but more in that, that zone four of permaculture uh, as would call it up there and see how that does and experiment with it. But that gets into production very, very quickly. It's also heavily predated on by deer and birds. So I don't know how well that one's going to work out for you. And because they're low, uh, they're easily accessible to the deer. But I think it might work better as a gorilla plant than a conventional plant. And here's why. When you have a nanking bush cherry in the middle of, a, of a, you know, an open space and it's sitting there with those beautiful red berries on it, for all the birds, it's like a magnet. They can see it from a, literally miles away. Right? They're soaring over. Oh, hey, look at that. That looks cool. If you kind of blend it into other surrounding places where it's not expected, you may have less predation. But the big ones are going to be the native species. Uh, and think beyond berries. Think about nuts, too. Acorns. How is gorilla? You know, oak just grows well. When you start to find that really nice white oak that produces those great big white acorns, you know, use that as the place where you grow your beans. I, I've shown you how I do that with hickories up in Arkansas. You grow the beans there, and even if the beans don't survive, since they're a legume, they produce nitrogen. They leave that nitrogen in the soil. When the top of the plant dies, the nitrogen stays in the soil. That tree now becomes healthier. Uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean when you're gorilla gardening that you are actually gardening. Sometimes it's just about harvesting. So knowing the area where that is, and maybe it's even simpler. Maybe it's you go out with what amounts to a sheet or a tarp that's even somewhat covered by leaves, and you know that the, that tree is a great tree that drops a lot of acorns every year. But instead of digging through a foot deep of oak leaves at the same time that you're trying to find these acorns during the mass drop, you just spread that sheet out, leave it there for a few days during the mass drop, come back, bundle up your sheet, and guess what? All you have to do is sift some leaves out of your acorns, and that can be done... Uh, with a little bit of wind and just tossing the same way you would winnow wheat from chaff. Cool, huh? That can be done with acorns. That can be done for you lucky folks in the Pacific Northwest that have filbert, hazelnut, whatever you want to call it. You can do it with that. It's not always about planting. Sometimes it's about creative ways of extracting. Um, as far as things like, uh, I want to call them naturalized invasives. I think that there's a lot of potential for that. I think if you live in an area where lamb's quarters does well and you get a huge supply of lamb's quarter seed and you make up a bunch of seed balls with that and you drop those, now you've got something that you can probably get away with. I'm not saying you should, but you can probably get away with. It's up to you in areas where you're really not supposed to be uh, growing anything, but you have access to because when the park ranger, whether it's a local city park or a state park or whatever, sees this field with a lot of lambs quarter in it, there's nothing unusual about that. And probably could give a crap less if you went out there and harvested. So if you encourage that very subtly, 
my dropping a few seam balls on the ground here and there, what's the harm? Because that's me. Now, if you live in an area where there's not a lot of lambs quarters yet, but they'll grow when you do that, now you're bringing an invasive species to the area. Those are entirely different. So what I'm saying is when you're working with anything that's a non-native plant, that's perennial, that reseeds and has the ability to come back year after year, you have to think about, does this plant, is it naturalized to the area? If it's naturalized to the area, I don't have a problem with it. Bill Mollison puts it this way with his permaculture efforts. I only work with native plants. 100% of the plants that I plant are native to planet Earth. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at things. Marjorie down at Backwood Food, uh, Backyard Food Production says, hey, as far as invasive, if it's a plant that produces nitrogen, produces or produces food, or provides anything that we can use as a resource, please invade us. So I think we can overkill with the concept of invasive and non-native species, but when it comes to the gorilla tactics, a species that has ability to multiply and replicate and stay there and take over, you have a greater responsibility than planting something in your backyard that you can contain. Example, red Malabar spinach. Love it. It's not a native species to America. Would do really well out there in the forest. You better think about where you put it, though, because it will come back year after year after year, and it can take on kind of it's like kudzu light to me. And grow some in your backyard. Make sure you like eating it, because once it's established in the warmer climates, it's almost impossible to stamp out. But i got to admit, if you wanted something that would take care of itself, Red Malabar will take care of itself. And it will hold off on germination usually until it's warm enough for it to grow well. So you won't have it germinate on that one warm spring day, come up and then die in a frost. Um, as long as you stick to the southern areas, it's not going to do good in northern areas on its own for reseeding, at least from my experiences. Maybe somebody will tell me, well, I live in Wisconsin and I do it. And I'll be like, great, I learned something today. But my experience with Red Malabar is... You get south of the Mason-Dixon line, and it can really kind of take care of itself and reseed itself. Uh, the video that I just did on corn, last year I had two red Malabar plants, just two. And I planted the whole garden bed with corn. And when I, when I took the corn out uh, yesterday and trimmed it, I found two red Malabar plants growing. They were very small. They were getting the, the corn I planted very, very dense. They were getting way too much shade. Uh, they immediately wilted to the ground from the heat and the, the initial solar exposure. I watered the hell out of the area. Uh, they sort of came back, but the next day I went out, and now they're growing. They already have, like, new shoots coming up out of them. Uh, so they'll be up on the trellis in no time at all. So that gives you an idea of the staying power of that plant. So it's great when a plant has that capability, but you have to understand how to use it responsibly, just like you have a gun. You have a great gun with a great round, and if you put two rounds center mass in the chest of a bad guy, it will kill him dead. That's a great thing, but it comes with responsibility. You have a plant that has an ability to replicate quickly, to take over. Uh, that's great when used responsibly, but especially with Gorilla Garden, you have a responsibility to make sure you're using it properly and you're not adversely affecting the native plant life in the area. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about how to find a, a, a location without becoming an outlaw, uh, so to speak. So not being up there in the National Forest doing this stuff. How do you find something like that? Well, you talk to people. You talk to people that have vacant land. A lot of times, if you find a piece of land and you see a sign that says for sale and the sign is kind of, uh, you know, faded and rotten looking and it's been there a long time and nobody's bought it, and you call that number, if, if it's not a leasing company or a re real estate company, if it's a buy owner thing, and you can actually get to the owner and say, hey, look, here's what I was thinking. 
maybe I could go on your property and do this. A lot of times they'll say, sure, go ahead, knock yourself out. But as soon as somebody comes in and buys it, you're out of there. You know, Maybe they don't want you planting apple trees and things like that. The other thing, though, is beyond gorilla gardening, what you might find in that situation is a person going, what do you want to do? And you may be able to arrange something where you have an annual lease for a piece of that property to do conventional uh, gardening or permaculture. They may see it as a, a new revenue stream. You may even approach somebody with a small plot of land that can't seem to sell it and say, hey, look, what if we turn this into a community garden? And what if we rented out plots? Could I at least do some research, do some Craigslist postings, and see how many people would be interested, we're considering this, this is what a plot will cost, this is what will get you, this is what you won't get, and see if maybe you can turn this thing into something productive instead of it just sitting there and you paying taxes on it. So there's a lot of opportunities out there like that. The best ones, though, will come from... Uh, either having that little homestead piece of land, bug out location piece of land that you own, you do whatever the hell you want to with, or for those of you that are lucky enough to kind of live out of the suburbs, in the sticks a bit, have a little piece of land, but have that neighbor that has that big piece of land behind you that you're good friends with, uh, asking permission. It's just like asking permission to hunt. Hey, I'd like to be able to go and plant some beans. And well, why? And you just explain, hey, I just want to try this. I think this is cool. It's something that I learned about. Uh, I'll share with you. A lot of times you get permission that way. You'll also find sometimes that it's absolutely acceptable on public property to encourage native plants that are already there for forage. And that might even mean moving a seed, planting a seed somewhere. So it might be you know, going out and uh, cutting some of those, those shoots off of that blackberry plant and replanting them somewhere else and things like that. That No one's really going to have a problem with that because you're not bringing anything into the area. Uh, and then there always is the outlaw path for those that want to do it. And uh, the hippies in New York City and uh, San Francisco do it, and everybody thinks it seems to think that's a, a great idea. I'm just going to warn you, they may not think it's as great of an idea if you directly benefit from it, because people overall in this country can really be assholes. And I hate to say that, but they can. You know, as long as it's the hippie out there planting a yucca plant in the middle of the meeting, oh, that's beautiful, he's making it beautiful. But because you're picking a few rattlesnake pole beans off of a tree, they might have a different way of looking at that. So be careful with your efforts whenever they're not on property that's under your direct control or with direct permission from the property owner because you could wind up in trouble. Overall, though, I think if you develop the skill set uh, it's a valuable skill set to have. A couple of announcements here at the end. There may not be a show tomorrow. I'm really going to try to get one out. Uh, but I'm going to be interviewing Ron Hood in the afternoon tomorrow, so that won't be in time for tomorrow's show. That show will air either Wednesday or Thursday next week, the interview with Ron Hood that's finally going to happen. Um, my wife is having some oral surgery tomorrow. I don't think it's that big a deal, but I may have to take her. If I do that, I may not be able to do a show tomorrow. Next week, Wednesday through Friday, I'm going to be down at Big Bend, uh, out near El Paso to do some work with Brian uh, Black of ITS Tactical. So that's going to take me out of pocket for a couple of days. So I'm going to try to double up on some shows at the Ron Hood Show, and then Monday and Tuesday I'm going to try to double up for you and try to give you a show every day next week, if not at least four days out of the five. I know there's been some short weeks lately, but i got a lot of stuff going on, I'm trying to beef up the video content for you on the YouTube channel, make some of these things that I do in audio a little bit more concrete by bringing the visual aids in. Again, remember, I still need some pictures. 
pictures for the Revolution Is You uh, video project. I need people in the pictures. I have enough garden pictures. I have enough gun pictures. I have enough hunting pictures. I need fishing, fishing pictures, construction pictures, alternative energy pictures. Those are the three big ones I'd like to add some more to. I have a ton of pictures. Everybody that sent one won't be in there. I'll do my best to get as many as I can fit in the duration of the song. Maybe I will even... After we do the first one, go back to the unused photographs and do a second version just because there was so much great participation and so much great content that I could really use this stuff in those other categories. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life in times get tough or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares.